America is having a long overdue conversation about policing and justice. As a matter of fact, just before we recorded this, a Louisville grand jury announced it would charge one officer involved in the killing of Breonna Taylor. He'll be charged with three counts of wanton endangerment for shooting the walls of other people's apartments, not for his role in killing Taylor. Two other officers won't be charged. Before the charges were even announced, Louisville announced a citywide curfew. You get the sense that they knew the charges wouldn't represent the justice so many people have spent 2020 demanding. Also last week, a New York billionaire announced he was raising funds to pay fines and fees for tens of thousands of disenfranchised people in Florida. These are people who had served their sentences in prison, they had done their time, but were still being blocked from participation in America's democracy because they were just simply too poor to vote. Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm R.L. Nave. And I'm John Hammontree. And on today's show, we are looking at America's broken justice system and its southern roots. Now, most of us know the criminal justice system looks different for black and brown Americans. And many of us probably have a sense of why the system has always worked against them. But this week, we're going to look at just how expansive and damaging that system has been. Dr. John Giggy is an historian at the University of Alabama and the director of the Summersell Institute for the Study of the South. In our conversation, he outlines the roots of today's problems of mass incarceration and how they can be traced back to slave patrols, mass lynchings, and convict leasing. And Beth Shelburne is a journalist who's dedicated her whole career to covering the ins and outs of the prison industrial complex. She walks us through the unique issues plaguing Alabama's prisons, one of the most dangerous prison systems in the whole country, as well as the problems that are similar to all prisons across the South. So let's get started on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Okay, Dr. John Giggy, thanks for coming on The Reckon Interview. It's good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. This week, we are looking at the criminal justice system and race in America. Right now, nearly 7 million Americans are currently under some form of correctional supervision, whether that's prison, probation, parole. That's roughly 3% of the U.S. adult population, and I believe it's the highest incarceration rate in the world. It's something that we spend a lot of money on to the tune of $81 billion in annual cost to U.S. taxpayers. And then if you factor in bail bonds, prison phone fees, court costs, policing, you know, it's another $100 billion in costs. Uh, again, that's among the highest in the world. And that doesn't seem to be something that we just stumbled our way into, that, that there's a long history of how we got to this point of mass incarceration and spending so much of our country's resources on that. Yeah, so one of the stunning things about current mass incarceration rates, but just mass incarceration culture in general, is how much it looks like it always has. That is a consistent policing of or imprisoning of bodies of color. This is not something new, but it's something tragic that dates back not just generations, but hundreds of years. If you start back even during slavery times, you saw the formation of slave patrols, which were often state-funded or local-funded efforts to manage Black men and women who were in bondage, Black Americans who were forced to labor their entire lives with really no hope of freedom. Slave patrols came into being in large part to prevent slave insurrections. That is, they were a public-funded effort to limit, to minimize, in fact, to completely deny Black efforts to achieve what today we would call basic human rights. Now, that link between public funding and the government on the one side and the imprisoning of Black bodies on the other, it certainly began before the Civil War, but it continued in various phases throughout the Civil War moving forward to the present moment. The Civil War, of course, broke slavery forever. 
but it bequeathed a population of nearly 4 million Black Americans who were at once free, but never quite equal to white Americans. We had brief moments of genuine equality in which the federal government, often at the point of a bayonet, prompted and prodded Southern society to recognize that skin color really had no bearing on the acquisition of basic human rights, basic citizenship. That idea, though, of Black Americans as fully enfranchised Americans was immediately contested in the Deep South. And it was never quietly accepted by anyone, for the most part, who was a former Confederate supporter. So what you see immediately are efforts, first at the local, then regional, and then eventually federal levels, not so much to reinstate slavery, but to try to limit Black rights so that white control of Black bodies was never to be contested again. So you see in one example, the implementation of Black codes in various forms across the Deep South. Those were overt attempts by post-Civil War governments run by former Confederates and their white Democratic supporters to literally attempt to make Black men and women once again serve at the bequest of a white employer. So whereas slavery was gone, the ability of white people to own and control land and demand and often receive Black people working for minimal wages under terrible conditions, that persisted. This is not to say that Black Americans accepted such a lowly status. The history of America could well be written by looking at persistent and steady efforts of Black resistance to win their rights to recover liberties that were supposedly were won during the Civil War. But part of that story is deeply tragic because even as African-Americans fought for their rights, they were often defeated in very profound, tragic, and often very violent ways. Reconstruction, in the end, became the deferral of a dream. That is, the dream birthed by the Civil War was the promise of full freedom run across America, regardless of skin color. Reconstruction signaled the end of that dream or deferred it for over a generation to the modern civil rights era. And its place became decades of assaults on Black citizenship. Often those assaults were deeply violent. Recently, the work of the Equal Justice Initiative based in Montgomery uncovered a series of mass lynchings between 1865 and the end of Reconstruction. In Alabama itself, it looks like at least 130 Black people were killed after the Civil War in a mass lynching. What's significant here is lynching was not unusual. It became a tragic fact of Southern society that persisted for generations. It became the most visible element of a government, both local and regional and federal, that was arraigned violently and bloodily against the ability of Black citizens to achieve their their rights. Part of lynching, of course, represents the extra-legal effort to control Black people. At the same time, you see the building of legal efforts, not simply through laws, but through the building of a a modern prison system. And so you begin to see aspects of what today we would call the convict lease system, in which young black men typically could be sent to jail and prison for minor offenses. Often perhaps they were caught loitering, or in some communities that required a black person to have a job to be mobile, right? They could be sent to prison for this. And there, they could expect to have a sentence that was enormously incommensurate with with their supposed crime. And so what you see is the growth of an early version of a modern criminal justice system that would imprison and then employ Black bodies for years. And these Black individuals were often called upon by the state to build roads, to take care of large agricultural or plantations. But often these Black individuals were rented out sometimes by local prisons 
to local landowners for pennies on the dollar to be employed in a way that could provide these landowners who were white with very inexpensive and arguably pliable black labor. And in Birmingham, for example, we saw the steel industry employed a lot of convict lease labor early on as well, I believe. Yeah, that's a great point. That is, for some of these new southern cities, that is cities that are moving post-Civil War into a way to try to capture a different kind of way to make money. So in Birmingham, it was the growth of the steel industry. That industry required an enormous supply of inexpensive labor that could be forced to work in the most oppressive of conditions. Many individuals, black or white, refused to work there. So they had to be forced to work there. And often the place to find those unwilling laborers was through this, this new convict lease system. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that a lot of these alleged crimes could be something that certainly would not be criminal behavior today, loitering or vagrancy, in some cases, refusing to cross the street for a white person. And it wasn't just that the governments were complicit, they were active participants in this system. Yeah, I think that's an important point that the creation of a criminal justice system that is disproportionately African-American, it's not random. It's not haphazard. It involves intentional steps taken by public officials at every level of government, of society. So you would have governors all the way down to mayors basically acting in lockstep, agreeing, if not explicitly, certainly implicitly, on the need to have a very controlled Black labor force that could fund these larger efforts to reinvent Southern cities in the decades after the Civil War. So that would be the public wing of the ways in which you could try to use criminal justice to harness and control black labor. The other part of that wing would be the cultural wing, the ways in which, for example, you have the growth of the lost cause, which is an effort, a very successful effort in the Deep South to reinvent the meaning of the Civil War, that it wasn't a war that was about slavery, it was a war fought for honorable ambitions, to prevent Yankee invasion, to preserve state sovereignty. So the issue of bonded labor was completely removed from that. And what you have instead is the creation of an honorific society in which Civil War veterans become seen as heroes. Jefferson Davis becomes a very common statue in many Southern cities. Part of this as well is to look at elaborations of how Blacks fit into this world of the lost cause. And they fit into it very badly. That the lost cause was not only about valorizing Confederates, but demonizing African-Americans. So a key part of the lost cause, of course, was the construction of a white purity narrative. That is, that white women, in part, were why the South fought so hard to preserve their honor, to preserve their dignity, but to preserve it from what? Part of it was to preserve it from a presumed black criminality, the need to protect white women from frenzied African-American men who were criminals of the worst sort, often looking to commit crimes of a sexual nature. So this fueled an interest in creating laws that could, again, subjugate Black men, limit their mobility, was also part of the underpinning of lynching culture that develops. And we now know that so many of the alleged crimes that Black men were accused of were of a sexual nature. A Black man supposedly assaulted a white woman. And this, of course, is directly violates the lost cause tenets of white purity, particularly white female purity. And it fueled these, these extra-legal efforts to use public lynchings as a way to demonstrate white mastery, to demonstrate white control of society, but also to reinforce to African-American communities that they're powerless, that they have to obey the most cruel rules and norms and regulations if they're simply going to survive. And my understanding is 
very rarely would anybody have been, any white person have been prosecuted for participating in a lynching. And at least in some instances, law enforcement and local governments were present and participatory in the behavior. Local newspapers would advertise lynchings ahead of time or post pictures of lynchings as if they were public square events, that this was something that, you know, all of white society in the South was built around. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that lynchings function as the most powerful public mechanism to demonstrate white mastery in the South from roughly the 1870s through the early civil rights era. Lynchings were often intensely public spectacles. They were advertised. They were through word of mouth or through newspaper announcements. People were invited to watch a Black person be hanged or shot or burned or all three combined. But also it's important to recognize that lynchings weren't simply about where someone was killed and why. Often the last 48 hours of the lynching victim's life took him across two, three, four, five counties in a state. Sometimes they would cross state lines. And so in hot pursuit are mobs of white people. These were these sagas of chasing down a criminal were well publicized. The point here is one lynching can literally terrorize wide swaths of the Deep South. Multiple counties are getting involved, being alerted, being put on alarm that somehow, somewhere, there's a Black criminal tearing through your property. I mean, we now know that from 1877 to roughly 1950, well over 4,000 Black men, women, and children were lynched. We know that there were many more accounts of that. But part of those 4,000 isn't simply where they were killed, but the fact that those stories and those, and those deaths they spread across the Deep South and it had a weight and a ferocity that extended well beyond the gallows. Our purview and our focus is, of course, the Deep South. But I guess while this is all happening, America is going through the Great Migration. And as Black Southerners are fleeing the South to northern and western cities, when they reach those cities, they find communities that are also going to criminalize their existence. Yeah, that's a really good point. Lynching, it was a social tragedy that burned brightest in the Deep South, but it was a national problem. You find lynchings in most every corner of America. What we're discovering now, tragically, is that lynchings follow Black migration patterns. And when you look at, for example, how stories of lynching in a small town in Alabama or Mississippi, how they get recorded, they might have a local newspaper reporting it. But what happens is those stories get published by the hundreds around the country. And so you can imagine if you have, let's say, 10 lynchings in a county in Alabama. But those 10 lynchings can produce literally thousands of stories published around the country, stories that often criminalize Black behavior and, and valorize the white mobs and demonstrate the need to protect white women from Black criminals. Thousands of these stories get spread around the country in a way that you can begin to see the way how a national vocabulary surrounding Black criminality gets developed. They get developed through a kind of national consumption of lynching narratives that have very consistent variables to them, turning on this question of Black criminality and the need to have laws and norms and a strong, aggressive, violent presence to hem in and control Black bodies and Black mobility. So it's not surprising that when you see these newspaper stories get published in places like Kansas or Detroit, they're accompanying often Black migration patterns, and they're fueling the kind of reception whites will have when they see a Black person in the street or on the conveyor belt working or on the assembly line. There's a way in which Southern culture is getting nationalized in the most ferocious way. And it's interesting, you know, we talked a little bit about the convict lease system, but prisons, you know, as we kind of know them today, were considerably less populated during this era than they were, I guess, in the post-civil rights movement 
in part, I suppose, because the primary instrument of control of black populations was was lynching and terror cut to the civil rights movement and some actions taken by Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson. And then all of a sudden, those extrajudicial behaviors by the white population are no longer legal, uh, even if they weren't legal at the time, but are certainly getting cracked down on more. And so as a result, the government creates a, a legal basis for controlling black people. Right. So the transition from an extra-legal culture of violence against Black people to a more legalized one follows a more modern narrative. So as you move through the civil rights movement, the classic one from the 50s and the 60s, what you see is a ending of, of public spectacle lynchings. You see the rise of a more modern state of mass incarceration. The state itself becomes a much more aggressive executioner of prisoners at this point. So you see the ways in which the state assumes what used to be happening in the, the public's eye now something was be ruled and controlled by the state itself. I think what's important to recognize is that the real move towards mass incarceration begins to happen politically with calls, say, by Richard Nixon for a law and order society. That is, with a wink and a nod, Nixon was attempting to woo voters who were concerned by Black progress in the 50s and 60s, who saw Black efforts at marching to try to demand what they had been long denied, and they were afraid of that. Nixon's call for law and order and subsequent calls by presidents or legislatures to create laws that were very restrictive regarding drug usage or begin to criminalize certain kinds of behavior that you see Black people getting caught up in this nexus of a new criminalization of Black individuals. Two quick examples. One would be, more recently, the three-strike rule, which basically created a pattern of conviction that could result in life imprisonment for often very, very small-level crimes. The criminalization of drug behavior, again, attached very long sentences and very restrictive sentences to often very low-level drug possessions. Policing culture itself became deeply invested in uprooting drug culture, but focused on inner cities as opposed to the suburbs. Inner cities, of course, are often where, even today, Black Americans live, much more so than, say, the suburbs, where more white people live. We do know that Blacks and whites engage in, in sort of various forms of drug consumption at roughly the same rate, but you see much higher rates of mass incarceration for Black individuals in part because policing culture focused on inner cities where Blacks live disproportionately. And you see the ways in which these, the criminalization of lower level drug behavior can now be weaponized in ways that can make it very difficult not to become imprisoned as a Black man sometimes in modern America. Well, and in reference to um, your comments about the national newspapers that were publishing displays of lynching just as the time of Black migration patterns to the North, you see similar behavior by media in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, where it's constantly displaying criminal depictions of Black youth and drug culture, furthering this narrative of Black criminality. Right. So what you see in modern newspapers, particularly in the 1970s going forward, is that the face of crime was painted Black. And often it was seen as being very young. So the notion of a super predator, which was, was coined during the Clinton administration, was something that was picked up by the media and consumed by the public. And what that meant was a fear that there's a rising generation of young Black youth, particularly young Black men, who are unwilling or unable to abide by norms of society. How do you work with them? You have to have a very strict policing and judicial culture that literally hems them in holds them accountable. It has to imprison them if necessary, because in part, they could well be irredeemable. They need to be kept behind bars to preserve a modicum of stability for the rest of society. Now, 
for myself, when I research and, and think about the modern versions of the color of crime being black and the, and the age of crime being young, there are distressing similarities with the decades and generations before. History, history doesn't repeat itself, but you, you hear powerful echoes of the past and present policies. And certainly, whether it be the, the media's fascination with publishing lynching stories across America, it's not that dissimilar from the media's fascination with establishing and publishing and popularizing notions of super predators as threatening the very fabric of American society. And even through today, we focus primarily in this conversation on criminalization of black behavior, but we're starting to see or have been seeing for the last several years now a similar narrative happening with brown Americans, uh, whether it's popular narratives about MS-13 or you know the, the war on terror, but creating a narrative that Hispanic and Middle Eastern Americans are, are more criminal than white and even black Americans. Yeah. The history of mass incarceration as it affects black Americans, as you point out, unfortunately and tragically is seeping into other people of color as well. It's, it's a warning sign for us that we have to understand this history and this present reality less suddenly those afflictions of Black America become normalized such that they begin to affect other non-white people. Something that history has to teach us and make us awaken to that. Again, we're taking conscious, intentional steps to popularize the ways in which we understand, we interact with, ultimately criminalize people of color. And the consequences are, are tragic, not only for the individuals who are incarcerated in their families, but just the cost of society the billions of dollars that we're spending to fund the mass incarceration state right now. One thing we haven't really touched on yet is the way that the mass incarceration state has also started to serve as the only option for people with with mental illnesses. Starting, I believe, in the 1980s, Reagan administration cutting a lot of funding for mental illness benefits, and that leading to the policing system and the prison system being kind of the area of last resort for for a lot of people who struggle with mental illness. What we see now is that the mass incarceration system is often the most vibrant center for mental health treatment in certain communities. Now, by vibrant, I mean it serves the most people who are the sickest. So the question is, how does it happen that that's the case? And this goes back generations to efforts to create more community mental health initiatives. So take people who normally would rely on a at a state hospital and treat them in the communities in ways that attempted to balance off their, their interest in and rights to have as much freedom as possible, but also to be treated as, as someone who is sick and needs certain kinds of medication. That was a wonderful ambition in some ways, but it failed to be fully funded. What we have now are a patchwork of community-based mental health systems such that people that could be very, very sick with depression or psychosis of some sort, they're not getting the treatment that they need or that people who are committing crimes are also dealing with very significant mental illness that goes untreated and should be seen as an accelerant, if not a cause of some of their behaviors. One of the great tragedies of the mass incarceration state, of course, is that it, it shines a harsh light on the limitations and the problems in the current mental health system. Also, when people leave prison, they have to have often appropriate mental health follow-up services That's often not the case, which means that recidivism, the return of people to prison, those odds are greatly enhanced if they're not getting the appointments they need with their local psychiatrist. What you see then is because the mental health system is so threadbare, not only do you have a wider door of entry for people in prison, but that door stays open when people leave because the odds of them coming back are rising if they can't get the appropriate treatment they need. 
So now we have a better understanding of how the prison system as we know it today was specifically designed to criminalize black and brown behavior. If you want to learn more about that topic specifically, check out The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander or watch Ava DuVernay's documentary 13th available on Netflix. Alabama specifically has an incarceration rate of 946 people for every 100,000 people. That's a rate nearly a third higher than the U.S. and nearly nine times larger than the rate of the United Kingdom, Canada, France, and most of the developed world. We send an overwhelming number of people to prison in the South. And what's it like when they get there? Coming up after the break, reporter Beth Shelburne gives us an inside look at the conditions of our prisons. For AL.com, I'm Ben Flanagan. This is Outbreak Alabama, stories from a pandemic. When people say this is just a light flu or a bad cold, I mean, it's not, that's not accurate. I mean, it's worse than that. It really is. My mask protects everyone else and everyone else's mask protects me. We didn't think we would be where we are right now with rising cases. We're going to be there. You know, we may be the last one standing. I hope that's not the case, but we're committed to, to being open. Outbreak Alabama. Stories from a pandemic. Search Outbreak Alabama on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Beth Shelburne, thanks for coming on The Reckon Interview. Thank you for having me. This week, we have been looking at the criminal justice system, and in Alabama in particular, but in the South as a whole, our prison systems are, to put it mildly, horrendous. We have had several federal investigations that have revealed report after report after report of how bad Alabama's prison system is, the point where both parties generally agree that something has to be done, but they disagree about what that something is. You know, you've been covering prisons for a long time. Can you tell us exactly what what is wrong with Alabama's prisons? Yeah, I think we have some things in common with other prison systems in our neighboring southern states that aren't unique, like prison overcrowding. And that's an issue outside the South as well. California is unconstitutionally overcrowded. We have old facilities, and that's not a unique problem. Many prisons around the country are crumbling and have failing infrastructure. I think that, sadly, society has kind of accepted that that's part of incarceration, is it's not a country club. You're supposed to live in bad conditions. I don't agree with that, but that just seems to be the general consensus among the public. What makes our prison system uniquely awful is the level of violence that we have seen uptick in the last decade. And I think it's been caused by a combination of that overcrowding, which has always been the case in our prison system in the late 70s and early 80s. We were overcrowded when we had 4,000 people in three prisons. We're still overcrowded with 20,000 people in 13 prisons. The scale of it has just increased. But a combination of overcrowding and understaffing, which has happened in the last decade, ADOC has really hemorrhaged staff. So those two things, along with a culture inside our prison system that is really overrun with corruption, contraband drugs and phones are common. Many staff members are tied up in all of this. And it's just created this powder keg where runaway violence is just an everyday part of life inside Alabama prisons. We have the highest homicide rate and the highest suicide rate 
of any state prison system. We also have unconstitutional excessive force. So the violence isn't just, quote, inmate on inmate violence. It's also staff on inmate. And it's pervasive. And I think the state has this sort of defiance in addressing this problem, both historically and in our current situation. And the problems extend both in men's and women's prisons in Alabama. I know Tutwiler, the women's prison, is is particularly horrendous compared to some other women's prisons around the country. Who's in our prison system? You know, are we talking people who primarily are guilty of violent crimes? Are we talking people primarily guilty of drug crimes, or I should say found guilty of these crimes? The majority of people in our prison system and every prison system around the state are people who have been convicted of crimes defined as violent. A lot of politicians in Alabama will say, after the 2015 sentencing reforms were passed, Alabama's prison population became more violent That's not necessarily true. The percentage of people convicted of violent crimes, statutorily defined as violent, did increase because property crimes and some drug crimes were diverted out of prison. But that doesn't necessarily mean the people in our prisons are more inherently violent than, say, the people in Mississippi's prisons or Georgia's prisons or California's. Alabama has a very broad definition of what constitutes a violent crime. You don't have to physically injure someone to be convicted of a violent crime. We have 51 different offenses that are defined as violent, and those include things like extortion, drug trafficking, even third-degree burglary, which is stealing something out of an unoccupied building. So if I go and steal a lawnmower out of a shed, the state calls me a violent offender. And they label you a violent offender the minute that you are convicted of one of these offenses and you carry that for life. When you go up for parole, if you have an offense from 30 years prior that was defined as violent, but you're currently incarcerated for drug possession, they'll call you a violent offender and that's how they'll, they'll see you. So I think that it's about a 70-30 split in our prison system currently, roughly. But I always tell people that caveat, keep in mind that if we compare prison populations to each other, they're all pretty much the same. Alabama has a much broader definition of who is violent than other states and the federal government. So if I'm understanding you correctly, there's no way to parse out in that 70% who has actually committed battery, who has committed assault, who has committed murder versus somebody who has been drug trafficking or stolen a lawnmower. The Alabama Sentencing Commission does have a breakdown by offense. So if you wanted to get really granular, you could pull out data on each individual offense. And that's actually a really good idea. I think I'm going to do that. (laughs) We're done with this interview. But burglary third is in the top 10 offenses that land people in Alabama prisons. And to me, that just does not constitute a violent offense. But, you know, they make up a large part of the people in our prison system. Um, One thing that I think We've been thinking a lot about this past summer, of course, is these are poorly ventilated prisons and we are in the middle of a pandemic. How have 
prisons throughout the South responded to the COVID-19 crisis? Not well. They have not responded well. I think that to their credit, they have tried to respond. But what I hear from sources inside the prisons, both officers and incarcerated people, is there's a real disconnect in what the officials at the prison system are describing is happening and what is actually happening inside the prisons. For example, the Alabama Department of Corrections instituted mandatory mask wearing, but it's loosely enforced. I was talking to a man who's incarcerated at Donaldson Correctional Facility yesterday, and he said, I'm, I'm sitting here looking across my dorm and I see two officers walking you know, among all the beds and they're not wearing masks. I've had people tell me that officers will wear the masks below their mouth. And then if a administrator, a warden, or a captain comes by, they'll pull the mask up on their face. So really inconsistent regulations. And, and we, we've all talked about that it's impossible to practice social distancing in our prisons. What some prison systems have done and states have done is they have looked at their older vulnerable population, people that have spent decades in prison that don't represent a threat to public safety, and they have fast-tracked ways for them to exit the prison system, whether it's medical furloughs, a medical parole, or putting them in some kind of re-entry program that's outside the prison setting. Alabama has not done that. I think some individual jails in some places have tried to reduce the population, but as a whole, we're still pretty packed out everywhere. And right now, COVID is racing through our population at an alarming rate. Fast-tracking parole would help deal with the greater issue of overcrowding in prisons generally. Absolutely. I think the purpose of parole has always been to mitigate prison overcrowding. Our criminal law system set up in Alabama does not support truth in sentencing. We can't have everybody that we sentence to prison time do their entire sentence day for day. So we have a parole apparatus and a whole schedule that is lined out in our statute on when people can be considered for parole. So when Governor Ivey appointed Charles Graddock to lead the parole board last September, we've had an effective shutdown in our parole apparatus. They stopped parole hearings for two months. They said to comply with the victim notification law. They've had stoppages due to COVID, but even beyond that, we were still on track to have the lowest number of people paroled out of our prison system in Alabama history, the lowest number of hearings held. So parole is absolutely a way that you can get people out of the system. It's particularly effective, I think, during a pandemic. But sadly, Alabama's parole system right now is just not working at all. And Alabama's been told to fix this problem going back decades now. But the 2015 bill, 2014-2015, was supposed to expand probations and parole, right? Clearly, it hasn't expanded parole, but has it expanded probations in practice? Well, it actually did expand parole for a little while. I think that because 
We put into the law that the parole board was to use evidence-based practices, specifically the ORAS. I think it's the Ohio Risk Assessment System. That allowed the parole board, which has always been heavily politicized in Alabama, it allowed them to start paroling more people than we have historically done. Alabama's never been an easy state to make parole in because prosecutors, the attorney general, and crime victims have a very, very loud voice in the process. And oftentimes, especially in violent crimes, the parole board is deferential to victims. If they go down there and protest somebody's release, they're not going to make parole. So that changed after 2015. And we saw the parole rates go from around 30%, which is pretty low on a national standing, up to, I believe, 54%. And that all came to a screeching halt when a parolee named Jimmy Lee Spencer got out and now is accused of murdering three people. That's what led to HB 380, which was the bill that allowed the governor to appoint Charlie Graddock as the director of the Board of Pardons and Paroles. And we've seen, you know, essentially screeching halt um, to the parole process since then. Governor Ivey is currently exploring, I guess, what she would bill as a solution to to Alabama's prison crisis, uh, the construction of new prisons to the tune of at least $2 billion. Can you walk us through what her plan is, how it would work, and you know whether or not it would address some of the concerns laid out in the federal reports? Yeah, and I'll just say from the outset that I do not support Governor Ivey's plan, and I've been vocal and published op-eds and am really working with people that are trying to stop it. I think it's a terrible idea, but what she wants to do, and this is a holdover from Governor Bentley's days, um, he was the first to present this idea of building three mega prisons, regional mega prisons in the state. That idea did not pass the legislature twice. And so now what Governor Ivey has done is she's taken the idea and she's basically circumventing legislative approval by doing this public-private partnership. So it would be a design-build-lease deal where private companies, and she's now named who those companies are, Core Civic is one of them, which is one of the largest private prison companies in the world, would design these facilities, build them, and the state would lease the facilities for $88 million a year up to 30 years. So we would essentially be the renter of a privately owned and designed mega prison. And at the end of the lease, the state owns nothing. What do we do at the end of the lease? We renegotiate and they up the $88 million a year rent to what? A hundred million? I mean, I think it's fiscally an insane idea to propose spending that much money to build even more prisons to incarcerate people. My main problem is the Department of Justice has told us that our prisons are unconstitutionally overcrowded, that overcrowding is the main problem that can be addressed in our prisons. It has led to all of the runaway violence, the suicides, and in an effect, the understaffing, because it's, it's very hard to work in an environment like that where you've got people, you know, sleeping cheek to jowl 
in, in these warehouse rooms. So the problem that I have is the new prisons might create a better environment and some shiny new buildings that we can incarcerate people in, but it creates no incentive to address the overcrowding problem. And that is the root of all of our problems in Alabama. So how have other states addressed the overcrowding problem? How, how do we even go about that? We go about it by instituting some, some real sentencing reform. And what we've done historically, including with the 2015 legislation, which was lauded as historic, but it was really nibbling around the edges. We really need to get to some of these draconian policies that have led to our prisons being at 180% capacity on a good day. So the Habitual Felony Offender Act is one of them, our three strikes rule. 20% of our prison population is serving an enhanced sentence under our Habitual Offender Act, a longer sentence than they would be were they not prosecuted under that law. We have other options on the books now. We passed presumptive sentencing guidelines in 2013, but prosecutors can still invoke the habitual offender law if they want to, and they, they still do. And that can be used in lower level crimes? Is that like, I mean, it's not necessarily habitual violent offender. It could be a habitual stealing of a candy bar. Sure. Theft falls under it. Any felony falls under class A, B, or C felonies fall under our Habitual Offender Act. Class D felonies, which were created by the 2015 legislation, are not subject to being used as a strike under the Habitual Offender Law. Unfortunately, legislators did not make that retroactive. So we have hundreds, maybe thousands of people serving enhanced sentences, some of them serving life sentences or life without parole under the habitual offender where one of the strikes is now considered a class D felony, which wouldn't even send them to prison, but they did not make that retroactive. So making some of the reforms that we have passed retroactive is a really good idea. That was one of the ideas, probably the best idea, in the governor's study group recommendations was making the 2013 presumptive sentencing guidelines retroactive. Unfortunately, they limited it to quote unquote nonviolent offenders. So you're really nibbling around the edges there. I think that you can't exclude people who've been convicted of a violent offense because that constitutes the majority of people in our prison system, and many of them have done a huge amount of time. I think that sentencing reform is the main thing, but John, I think that we can use some of the appropriated money for our Department of Corrections, which is a massive amount of our general fund budget already. This is not an agency that's been underfunded. We can use some of that money to renovate existing facilities and to put resources into programming that can really make a difference in people's lives and can create pathways out of prison. So you mentioned Tutwiler, and Tutwiler you know, is and has been a terrible place. It's the oldest prison in the system. It was built in the 40s. And in 2012, the Federal Department of Justice began investigating sexual violence perpetrated by staff against the women at Tutwiler in 2014. They found that it was widespread and that it had gone on for the better part of a decade. 
And since then, the Department of Corrections has largely cleaned up Tutwiler and made some, some real institutional changes that have really affected the institution and made it better. It's still a prison, but they changed the gender makeup of the staff. So they hired a lot more women. They have all female wardens now. The majority of their staff is women. They developed gender-specific programming. They also renovated many parts of the prison and retrofitted some of the facility to add programming space. So when the Department of Corrections says that they can't do that with the men's facility, I don't believe them because they did do it at Tutwiler and I haven't heard a good reason why they can't other than they want to build these three new mega prisons. But I think that there is money there where they could address some of these awful conditions inside the prisons and put more money toward programming that could make a real difference. You mentioned some actions that would potentially fast track the release of some incarcerated individuals. The prison system itself is now set up in such a way where people who are released from prison, who are ex-felons, aren't necessarily set up to succeed in society. Uh, What are some of the hurdles that people face that often could lead to high recidivism rates? Oh, absolutely. Our state has really failed people that are coming out of prison. And I can say that space of assisting people who are re-entering society has largely been filled in our state by faith-based groups and by former offenders, by people who have been in the system, have gotten out and have decided, you know what, I'm going to dedicate my life to helping other people because I've, I've walked in these shoes. I mean, the hurdles are endless. It's everything from housing to finding a job to even, you know, being able to, to get your basic ID. Last year, I talked to some advocates who were working with an elderly man. This is 2019. An elderly man who had done over 30 years in Alabama's prison system. And he was released from prison. He reached his end of sentence. So in Alabama, when you reach your end of sentence or your EOS, there's no state requirement for any kind of supervision. You are thrown out the door. They give you a little bit of pocket money. I think it's maybe $20, $30 and maybe a bus ticket to wherever you're going. Well, this man had no one. He had lost track of any family members or friends. I'm not sure what part of the state he ended up in, but he was camping in a tent in the woods when some advocate became connected with him, he was missing medication that he was supposed to be taking. He had some mental health issues. He was sick when they found him and they were able to get him into a program, a halfway house, connect him with some services. But that's sort of how the state does people in a lot of the cases of people going out of prison is they're just thrown back out I think that the governor's study group did have some ideas and some uh, policy suggestions on addressing that issue, um, which I think is good. But, you know, the main problem that they were charged with fixing was our overcrowding and none of their policy recommendations address the overcrowding. Right. And I think that's something that most people probably don't realize about our prison system. I would guess that most people think, well, if you serve your time, you know, your debt is repaid to society, end of story. But 
even a short-term sentence can be a life sentence if it keeps you from being able to get a job, if it keeps you from being able to get housing government benefits like SNAP and other benefits. And I think that's something that seems to be nationally a problem, not just not just in Alabama. Yeah. And I think that it's also worth mentioning just the mental recovery that is required when you come out of a prison system like Alabama's. No one leaves our prison system unharmed. And that includes people who have done time and people who have worked there. And I've talked to folks that have been out of the system for a decade that are doing well in the world, but tell me they're still struggling in certain areas. Um, I know a woman who served 10 years of a life sentence for a nonviolent drug crime at Tutwiler. She was paroled. She's still on parole. And when she got out, some friends took her to a restaurant and she wasn't able to look at the waitress and tell her what she wanted. And when her friends asked her, you know, what's wrong? What's going on with you? She realized that for 10 years, she was told to face the wall when people from the outside world came through the prison. And the message that that sent her was, you're not worthy. You're not allowed to talk to people. And she forgot how. She forgot how to have just a normal conversation. And so I don't think enough can be said about the trauma that people carry with them coming out of prison. And so that's why I support any efforts at decarceration or any efforts on the front end to divert people out of prison, because I don't think that our prisons rehabilitate people. I don't think they keep us safer because people come out traumatized. And I think they're completely inhumane. One thing we haven't talked much about yet is the number of people who are in Alabama's jails who have not yet been convicted of any crime uh, who might be there because of cash bail or other issues. How pervasive of a problem is that? How many people are in currently in some form of incarceration who have not yet been convicted of anything? I wish I knew the number off the top of my head. I think that the number has gone down across the state because of COVID. I know like in Jefferson County, people were released, um, many people who were being held pre-trial on some form of, you know, home confinement just to get them out of the jail setting. But it's a huge problem around our state. I have been surprised at what a problem it is in our municipal jails with people being held for misdemeanors. You know, the Birmingham City Jail remains full there are, you know, anywhere between 75 and 150 people being held down there every day, oftentimes for a misdemeanor like public intoxication, and they can't afford whatever the bail is when they go to their hearing. So they're, they're sitting down there serving some kind of little piddly sentence. It's also such a patchwork of facilities that are governed by municipalities or counties, and it's different everywhere. I think that there are some jails that don't even know who all is in their jail and why they're there. It's a huge problem in Alabama, and I think in, in many ways we criminalize poverty, and that has not been addressed. Do you have a sense of you know, how much of Alabama's population we're talking about who has been affected by the criminal justice system and in some way, shape, or form? I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to look into it and I will tweet it so you'll know. I will say that the racial disparity in our 
prison system in our jails and prisons in Alabama is horrifying. I first noticed it the first time I went to a men's prison. I went to Donaldson Correctional Facility in Bessemer. And just the optics of walking into a big warehouse type space and seeing like 95% of the men wearing white are black men, it's really stunning. And when you think about our state's overall demographics, that we are 27% African-American or black, but our prison system is 54% Mm -hmm. African-American. And when you look at different policies and how they've impacted people, I've been doing a lot of reporting on our habitual felony offender law, um, our three strikes law, 75% of the people sentenced to life without parole under our habitual offender law are black. So I know that the racial disparities in our system are really quite horrifying, especially given Alabama's history with racism that's written into our constitution. But as far as how many people have been impacted, I don't know, but I'm totally curious and definitely want to find that out. Our population of our state prison system right now is around 20,000 but that's custody population, people being held in the facilities. And it doesn't include the people that are in the Department of Corrections jurisdiction, but are being held in county jails. And I'm told that is several thousand people. And so when COVID is over and the Department of Corrections begins intakes again and begins accepting intakes, there's going to be a flood from the county jails. And I know that that's a real concern for a lot of people. After we spoke, Beth followed up with some numbers from the Prison Policy Institute. 106,000 Alabamians are currently under some sort of supervision from Alabama's correction system. That's a number that includes the number of people in jails, prisons, probation, and parole. And it's roughly one out of every 50 people in Alabama. And that's just the people directly affected. That number doesn't reflect the number of friends and families affected by our prison system, or the number of people who previously came through some form of supervision and are now out. It's a massive problem, and it's going to take a lot of smart, compassionate people to fix it. Got ideas? Shoot us a tweet at at South. Special thanks to Dr. John Giggy and Beth Shelburne for joining us this week. This episode was executive produced and co-hosted by me, John Hammontree. And me, R.L. Nave. It was edited by Abby Gibson at Edit Audio. We've got a great treat for you all next week. We'll be hearing from Jamie Harrison about his Senate race against Lindsey Graham in South Carolina and the hurdles his party is facing across the South. Now help us make a splash with this episode by getting your friends and family to subscribe to the show right now. Text them. We know you've got unlimited texting. And while you've got your phone out, go ahead and leave us a review in the Apple Store. And until next week, thanks for reckoning with us.